I want you to turn in your Bibles right away to 1 Peter chapter 3, and this first part's going to feel like a backyard VBS uh, Bible competition. We're going to be flipping a couple different places. Go to the front cover of your Bible if you haven't looked at 1 Peter in a while. Uh, Ben's about ready to stand up like he's in Awana, saying he found the verse already. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Something that we talked about in the Demanding series, uh, which was just looking at what is what does Jesus demand uh, from his followers, is this idea that we're to preach God's word. And um, Scott, I'm needing help getting the first slide up, if you can bring that up for me. Uh, if you are... Uh, if you don't have enough pizzazz or zest in your relationships, um, and especially when you first meet someone, uh, if you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, let me just give you this little tip, okay? Because it's perfectly accurate according to the Bible. God's called every follower of Christ to preach. So as you're meeting someone, and, um, and when it seems appropriate, or when there's a little bit of a lull in the conversation, just toss this out. Uh, by the way, did you know I'm a preacher? What that will do as you introduce yourself to this person is it will suddenly cause all kinds of fun reactions with them, okay? Uh, they will suddenly go, what? And they'll, they'll, they'll start to throw out bizarre sorts of things with it. So just try me on this. This holiday season, uh, when someone asks what you do, don't say I'm, uh, you know, I'm a mom or I work at, you know, Cisco or something else. Just say I'm a preacher and just see the fun that follows, okay? It might be fun to just document it and send it out in Christmas cards. It would be perfectly accurate. As Christ has called every follower to preach the gospel, right? First Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. Um, here it is, ready? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're not going to just review all of this, but we clearly had uh, a lot to talk about with that, with the idea that everyone is to be a witness and, um, and to share the gospel. What are we to preach? What are we to bear witness to? What are we witnesses of? Uh, if I could put it in one word, it would be, as 1 Peter 3 says, our hope. And by our hope, I want to include with that sound doctrine, sound reason for the hope that we have. Not just throwing up, I trust in God but giving a reason for the hope, sound doctrine. Flip over to Titus chapter 2. We're not going to be in these passages long, but I want you to see them with your own eyes. Titus chapter 2. I'll give you a second to get there. Yesterday, by the way, a handful of us, a little team of us, went out and passed out uh, several hundred, uh, probably more than a thousand actually, of these little door hangers. Uh, to our neighbors, and I'm not going to embarrass this person, but I'm thrilled to see one person in this room uh, that received one of these. And it was so awesome. It was this cool, uh, just blustery, windy day, uh, but, but the Lord held the rain off for us, and we just cruised around and passed this out. And if you think about it, taking a door hanger and hanging it on someone's door to simply invite them to church this Christmas is, is a way of preaching, isn't it? If not even by the words that are said saying, look, I value my church enough and what I've discovered at my church enough to want to invite you to come to it. Um, it's also communicating something that says something in these people on a Saturday morning when it was supposed to rain are out here walking my neighborhood wanting to invite me to something. Now, curiously enough, I met no one except for one person that was uptight that I was handing this out. You know who the uptight person was? It was a, of course you don't. You're like, Dave, help us out here. 
It was a pastor from another church. And it was the weirdest thing as I'm walking down the street and I hand it to this person walking. I said, hey, we're out here passing these out. And he took it from me and he said, what is this? I said, well, it's an invitation to our church this, this Christmas season. And before I could say another word, he puts it back. He kind of like shoves it back in my hand and puts his arm around my, uh, his, his hand on my shoulder. And he goes, I'll be at my church. I'm the pastor. <laughs> I said, well, good on you, mate. Uh, no, I didn't. I just, I, I kind of walked away a little bit stunned. And I thought, how bizarre. Like the only person yesterday that got a little bit uptight at me for handing this out was another pastor. That is not indicative of Willow Glen, Cambrian area. I want you to know that. Many pastors I know are on great terms, and we feel we're on the same team preaching the same gospel, but it was a little bizarre. Uh, back to the point. Do we have our slide up yet? I'm, that's just in the back of my brain. We've got Gree and Scott and Phil, the best minds in this church on the job on this. So, uh, Titus chapter 2. Good thing we have the Bible, huh? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Here it is. What are we to bear witness to? We're to bear witness to our hope. Sound doctrine. As we read this passage, here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for the gospel message. That's words, being mighty in words. Listen for gospel living. Mighty in deeds. Jesus was mighty in words. Jesus was mighty in deeds. Listen to this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas season. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the good news. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. There's that word hope again. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is great. It identifies by name, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Gospel message, gospel living. There it is, right in that little passage. Now check this out. To those who are already called into this hope, to those who have been saved by this hope, to those who are trusting their their life and their eternity on this hope, here's what it says. It goes on in verse 15. Check this out. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If I could sum up this little passage and this idea that we're to preach, here it is. Announce, proclaim, and say publicly what you've based your life on. Do it with words, do it with deeds. And then don't be ignored. It says, let no one disregard you. I think the worst thing this church could do is if in 10 years it burned to the ground, we all just dispersed, and no one ever really noticed this church was gone. If you haven't walked our neighborhood one time this year, and you call this your church home, I would challenge you in 2011, one time next year, come walk the church neighborhood with us. Come walk the immediate neighborhood with us. There is something really powerful to walk up to a doorknob and, and to just hang this on it. And now yesterday there weren't a lot of people out mowing their lawns and whatnot. But as I'm hanging on there, I'm praying for this whole world that lives within these four walls. There's a family in there. There's a single individual in there. There's a bunch of people in there. And they need to know about Jesus. And so I'm just doing it as a prayer walk also, walking along. I'll tell you who was the all-star on my team. My six-year-old daughter, Tegan. 
She probably covered more houses, I would venture to guess, than almost anyone on the, that, that came out yesterday. She was like the Energizer Bunny, just jamming along, doing, doing this. I would challenge you to walk the neighborhood. I would challenge you to walk your neighborhood. Because God never intended church to be this right here. Come and gather, go away. Come and gather, go away. Right? But to go out. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. The way that we won't be ignored, the way that uh, people won't disregard us, is if we're just out talking to people, loving on people, serving people. We've got this whole garden in the back. The whole point of the garden is share the abundance. It's not a garden for us. It's for the community. That's the point of it. Now, let's flip over to the passage that we're in this morning, which is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me say this. You don't need to turn there, but a third passage with this whole idea of the fact that we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to give an account for the hope that we have is this. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Let me just ask you, just by your own observance, has that time arrived? I think it's here. When people will not put up with sound doctrine, the very thing we're to be proclaiming, the very thing we're to be preaching is a reason for our hope. Sound doctrine. That means we need to know what sound doctrine is, doesn't it? It kind of begs that question for us. But then there will be a time when people won't put up with it. I think we've arrived at that time. Let me read for you. I said this last week because it's true. It's even more true this week. We're in the dessert portion of Scripture. I mean, this is, a, this is a portion of Scripture I want you to meditate on, I want you to think about, I want you to write this and put it in your home somewhere. These are foundational passages. I talked to a pastor I hadn't talked to in about a year and a half. I was an intern under him. He was instrumental in, in developing me as a, as a pastor. And uh, he goes, hey, Dave, I mean, just we're chit-chatting about different things. He's at a seven-year-old church plant, been there two months. He said, Dave, what are you preaching on this week? I said, dude, I get Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And he just goes, yeah, like he was just so excited for us. He was so excited for our congregation because it's such a rich passage. Let me read it for us and then we'll pray and move on. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me start it just in verse 8 here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And I'll cover what we covered last week because we kind of skipped around. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, this morning, uh, we just long to hear from you. I'm so excited, God, uh, just and, and privileged and humbled, Lord, to be able to communicate uh, the truth of this message to the ears of our people. God, as we've come for some family time to be encouraged, to be lifted up, to be instructed, possibly to be rebuked this morning, or to seek after what real salvation is about, I pray that as we sing, you would come uh, and meet us here. I pray, Lord, that we would reciprocate and come to you, expectant to hear from you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. title this morning is from rebel to reverence what god did for us and i want to walk through some things and we have a pretty packed morning so uh so listen carefully um if you're taking notes this morning can fill this out salvation can only be god's work and i want to give you a couple of reasons for that and then expand on that a little bit salvation can only be god's work 
uh, because we're helpless on our own merit. Merit has something to do uh, with the idea of a person giving a performance and, and getting their due for that performance. Whether that be a job and a paycheck or a great uh, you know, song being sung and, and a, a standing ovation at the end of that. But merit has to do with this idea of being paid or, or given something for the performance that you were given. Now, we're helpless on our own merit. We're not going to go back and cover a bunch of this ground because, frankly, we've been in this for a little season now. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, but, but let me point this out, that even if, even if you and I were somehow able to measure up to God's law and we were somehow able to, to meet the requirements laid out in God's law as to what holy living is, which the whole point of the gospel is to undo that, right? And say the law is only a schoolmaster or, a, or an instructor to point us to the coming Savior. But even if we could somehow do that, um, we understand that, that, that we're still alienated, we're at odds, and we're not invited into God's family. Let me illustrate it this way, with our second point, and that is this. Uh, salvation can only be God's work because God is offended. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you an example that you will all be able to relate to, and it will take some of what I'm talking about and put it into story form. When I hear the word salvation can only be God's work, let me tell you where my brain goes. My brain says this, of course it can only be God's work because He's omnipotent and He's omni-everything, and he's God. So, of course, it's only God's work. But I want you to think about it this way. It can only be God, God's work because God was the one who was offended. Okay? Let me put it this way. Let's say that uh, a person, we won't even put you involved in it because that might get too personal, but let's say a person's driving down the street, carelessly runs down and kills a child. I mean, the unthinkable, right? Horrible. This person would probably be arrested, tried, and fined, and imprisoned for involuntary manslaughter. But after he paid the fine, served the sentence, he would be free and guiltless before the law in regard to that crime. We tracking so far? Okay. I've, I've done this crime. It was involuntary, but it happened. I've now paid my debt to society. That's a phrase we kind of use sometimes. But paying his penalty before the law would do nothing to restore the life of the child or alleviate the grief of the parents. The offense against them was an immeasurably deeper was on an immeasurably deeper level. The only way a relationship between the parent and the man who killed their child could be established or restored would be for the parents to offer forgiveness. No matter how much the man might want to do so, he could not produce reconciliation from his side. Only the offended side can offer forgiveness, and only forgiveness brings about reconciliation. So let's just say for a moment that the merit question weren't in play, and you somehow thought you were okay with that. Well, now when you realize it's God's law that was, that was broken, it's God who is offended by it. Now you see, only God can restore the relationship. Last week we covered this, but God. Remember that? But God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. God initiates it. Take the parents in this situation. This person could try all they want on their end to try and 
be reconciled, but they'll never be invited in for a meal. They'll never be considered part of the family. They'll never even just be on speaking terms unless the parents initiate that and offer forgiveness to them. It's totally in their court. The same is true with God because God's the one that we have offended. Enter the word grace. Grace is the favorite word of all rebels. Once they discover it, once they really get a hold of what grace is about and what the Bible's teaching is the way, the plan of salvation, it becomes our favorite word. We sing about it. We name our children grace. We talk about it. We pray and we thank God for grace. Remember that word merit? Here's grace. Hard to define, and I don't want to trivialize it, but unmerited favor. Here's the favor I'm going to give to you, and it's on no merit of your own. I'm just going to choose to give it to you. The only merit those who are leaning on grace have uh, at our disposal is the merit of Christ. The only work that we have hope for salvation in is something that was done 2,000 years ago and involved a cross and now involves an empty tomb. The only source of peace is knowing that you and I didn't earn this favor from our own merit in the first place, and so there's no risk of losing it. That's peace. That's moving forward. Remember we talked about hiking yesterday, or last week. The idea that God has laid out a path for us to walk in. And we can't glory in that ourselves. We're just following where the Lord leads us. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. You ought to be thrilled that God makes a sincere promise by His own name because He can't swear by anything higher that He won't ever unadopt you. That when He welcomes you into His family... And when he says, I've chosen you, and you're, you've got a place at my table, I will never unadopt you. I will never leave you orphaned. Man, from two weeks ago, that has continued to drive into my brain. Hope for Orphan Sunday. By the way, quick side note on that. Several of you have asked, are there more cards? Is there more need? The answer is this. There is wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of need in this world. I called World Vision and I shared with our rep what went on a couple of weeks ago. That all 40 cards are gone and people are asking for more. She was overjoyed. She said, can I share this with our whole staff? That is just incredible. I said, yes. And I said, we'd like more cards sent. So on the back table through the rest of December, we have 20 more cards back there uh, right now. Here's what I want you to do with those. If you've already come and committed to, to sponsoring a child two weeks ago, this isn't a plea or a pull to overextend yourself and do something you'd regret later. What I'd like you to do is this, though. Some of you didn't get an opportunity because literally 40 cards went so quickly in this room. Some of you caught on to the vision of, man, I've already, I'm already adopting or sponsoring two kids. I can't possibly take on two more at 35 uh, bucks a month. But I've got family and friends. I would love to grab a card and find, be an advocate, be a voice for that voiceless person. And I would like to find a sponsor for that. If you take a card, that's what you're saying. So please, go take a look at them. If you've already sponsored uh, kids, that's fantastic. But some of you have asked for more. They'll be back there through December. I probably won't say a whole lot more about it through this month. <clears throat> Rebels turn reverent because of our favorite word, grace. Uh, FGs. FGs are false gospels. 
False, false gospels abound. And false gospels always do this. They take that favorite word of rebels, they take that favorite word of the Bible that's being painted for us, and they always add something to it. And that's what muddies it up. It's the work of Christ plus something else. And I'm going to demonstrate that for you in a little bit. But the Bible says quite clearly, there is no salvation but by grace. It's unmerited favor that God extends to you. Let me just read some verses to you. You can write these down and look them up later. Make sure I'm not lying. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, salvation, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It'd be a paycheck. Galatians 2.16 We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do we see a pattern here? I mean, it's just being driven home to us time and again. 2 Timothy 1.9 God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I could go on all day, by, by the way, with this. I really could. Titus 3.5, I'll give you one more. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, the discerning mind in here, or the cynic, might say, Dave, you just read one, two, three, four, five, five verses from the New Testament. The Bible's a thick book. A whole bunch more is the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament have to say about this? We could really be here all day. We could be here all week if we started to just pull from those. But let me give you a couple of, uh, of scenarios. I've been meditating and thinking on Ephesians 2 for a long time now. And in my quiet time, part of my quiet time has been Second Chronicles. Okay? Now, in Second Chronicles, what we're reading about is we're reading about these different kings. Time and again, here's what happens. People of Israel uh, get down in the dumps. They stray. They go astray. God saves. They humble themselves. They seek God. God saves them out of their misery. Right? And what happens is a good king will come and he will, he will clear things out. He'll clear away all these false worship, all these false gospels, false hopes that people have put their trust in. And then what will happen is there will begin to be pride happening again and there will be this little infestation of other nations and other ideas and other, other thoughts that come in that challenge this idea of one God and then it goes awry all over again. King Hezekiah was one of those who came, and his purpose was, he came in, and God raised up in his heart that I'm going to shatter all these demonic distractions. I'm going to take uh, sorcerers out of the land. I'm going to cut down these Asherim poles. I'm going to cut down all these high places and places of worship that people are going for salvation, and they're just wrong. There's nothing to them. They're wood and they're idols, and I'm going to get rid of them in the land, and we're going to return to one God, which God has constantly been trying to do. FG's also is uh, fool's gold. And what happens in Second Chronicles 32.10 is this. There's a guy named Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria. He comes to Jerusalem and he puts a siege on them. Nothing in, nothing out. And he just starts to lay this siege on the city. And he's going to kind of starve them out, basically. Now remember what King... 
Hezekiah has done. He's come and he's, he's wiped the land of all this, uh, this false idol worship so they can return to worshiping God. And then 2 Chronicles 32.10 says this, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege of Jerusalem? He's calling out to people, By the way, whenever you place your, your faith on something, I don't care if it's a false hope or a true hope, there will be naysayers of it. But as a Christian who's placed his faith in Jesus Christ, there have been naysayers my whole life about it. Here's one of them. Here's how it comes. On what are you trusting that you endure the siege of Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and and commands Judah and, and Jerusalem this, before one altar you shall worship? And on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Here's the picture. The very thing Hezekiah did that was very pleasing to the Lord, and that is to wipe out false gospels so they could see the one thing to trust him. His enemy comes along, and he, he points out this good thing King Hezekiah did as something bad. Look, you're under siege. Things are bad right now. Here's the inference. Because... This king has wiped out all these sources of good and things you can trust in. He's leading you astray to, to, to worship at one altar. Why do one when there's so many? All the others can't be wrong. Does this sound familiar yet, people? There will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That was written in the New Testament. We're in the Old Testament right now. I think that was an easy statement to make because that's always been true. So we could go on and on, but I won't do that. Jasmine, where are you? Come up here, Jasmine. I've asked Jasmine. Jasmine doesn't know a ton of what she's about to do, but she knows just enough to keep it interesting. Um, Jasmine is... Come turn around and face, face this lovely congregation. Jasmine is a uh, freshman yeah. at Branham High School. She's a Bruin. And, um, and uh, here's what I've asked her to do. Uh, I have told her that if you'll help me... She was out passing flyers out yesterday... And I said, I said, Jasmine, if you will help me with something, I have a prize for you tomorrow. And it's a legit prize. Okay? So, um, so she's doing this based on, on just that. I mean, it could be a paperclip. That's a prize. It's kind of a lousy one. It's not a paperclip. It's actually much better than that. Um, but here's what I want you to do. Um, I was going to blindfold you, but because we have some, some candles on stands, that would make it more interesting than I want it to be. Okay? So we're going to let you have your eyes open. And... Um, and in just a moment, you're going to get some instructions of where this prize is. She has no idea where this prize is. And so if right now, uh, if I've asked you to help me out, would you just stand and instruct um, Jasmine where it is, please? Are you ready to be... T- All right, time out. Um, poor Jasmine. Um, let me do this. Keep standing, Travis, for a second. Um, let me just say this. Uh, Jasmine, I happen to know, has a little bit of a relationship with some people in this room. But let me tell you, okay, uh, that, that there's one person that, that actually knows where it is. Now, you are allowed to move. It was interesting. I didn't know how Jasmine would respond. She was paralyzed. <laughs> She, she was just paralyzed. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know where to go. Um, now, uh, the person's name is Gurria. 
Okay? Gria is the only one in this room who knows where it is. Okay? So let's try this again. Take two. Go ahead. All the other voices have gone silent. They're like, we, can't, we cannot compete with that. Just to add to the excitement, her shoelace is untied near the flame. I love it. This is, this is pure drama right here. Hey! Thank you, Jasmine. Jasmine is an awesome sport, and I knew I could count on her. She's rewarded with a bunch of Christmas kiss, kisses, which she can share or use as the welcome lunch for herself. Um, I think the point's obvious, isn't it? I mean, when you're standing in this place and you're like, all right, I've decided I'm going to go on a search for God. I've had people very close in my life say, Dave, I've decided that, um, I've decided that I really want to go pursue the bigger things in life. And I want to warn you, I, I may not end up where, where you've ended up, and I don't want that to come between us. You know what I start to get really excited about? I get really excited because I say, if you're really at a place where you want to pursue truth, I believe that as you pursue that, I believe that God is just has been longing for that. And what I ask them is this. I say, just based on our relationship, there are a hundred, in my opinion counterfeits out there, would you do me the honor, would you do me the favor of starting with the Bible? Would you just start there? I mean, there are many holy books in the world and throughout history. How do you know which one is right? You may end up paralyzed. You may end up weeks from today in the same exact spot as all the voices start to come to you. We're easily duped. We're easily lured away in our sin. We're easily mistaken. Just look at mistakes that you made in 2000 and what year are we? 10. You know what some of those were based on? Your ignorance. Your lack of ability to make a, a proper judgment about the future. Let me just throw this out at you. If you can't get 2010 straight, how does eternity look for you? I mean, don't you want to know? Don't you want to know? And so when someone comes and they say that, I say, would you please start with the Bible? I'm really not afraid of other holy books because I believe that truth is truth and God's going to reveal it to you. He's going to open your eyes. But would you just start here? Many people have taken me up on that and they've come to the Savior and it's been a thing of rejoicing for me to be at their baptism and watch them grow in their, in their spiritual walk. There's a lot of voices out there and I want to, I want to just read a handful of false gospels. And when I say false gospels, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that I hate these people who wear this label. I don't mean uh, to say that, that these people are my enemy in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes Christians get into this mode of wanting to argue people into, into the kingdom. What they take is this kind of a stance. I'm right and you're wrong. Let's go. Does this build friendship and, and discussion and dialogue? No, it builds fistfights, Right? And animosity and walls. What if, what if Christians really as they walk a neighborhood, really as they place an order with a barista, really with co-workers, look at this person and just say, man, this is a person creating God's image. 
I know what it was like for my own life to, to live without hope, to wonder about what happens. I know what it's like to go to a funeral and, and hear some meaningless, frivolous words said, but to really wonder what, what's beyond death. What if we began as Christians, as the church, to view people as wayward lost children? What's our stance toward wayward lost children? It's one of compassion and love and wanting to come and put our arms around side and, and engage some trust to guide them home, put them in a place of safety. Now, there's some lost children who don't want your help, huh? They'll swing at you. They'll get mad at you. doesn't mean you give up on them. And it certainly doesn't mean, well, good, then I've won and you've lost. Stay lost then. That's the stance I'm afraid some Christians tend to take. With that being said, let me, let me just with a very broad brushstroke, paint a picture of some false gospels. And I'm just saying, this is false gospel according to the Bible, okay? All the things I just read, salvation by grace through faith alone. Do you know that the major rub between Roman Catholic and Protestant theology is based on this idea of merit and grace? That's where the whole rub is. Catholic theology says this, that there are three levels of merit, the third level only being attained by a saint. And the fact that people in the church can actually have merit that they can impute or give to someone else. Protestant theology protests that. Protestant. They protested that. And they came, and the, and the, and the, the declaration of the, of the Reformers was... Sola gratia, it was salvation by God's grace alone. And they denied this idea that someone else could give righteousness aside from the merit of Christ. And that's where the division started, and through the ages, that's where the division lies. Um, I did some reading this last week and the week before uh, studying the Mormon religion had many close friends who are Mormons. Mormons were some of the nicest people that I met. There are some gentlemen that walk our neighborhood. In fact, I think they're more committed to walking our neighborhood uh, than, than I am. But let me tell you what the Mormon religion teaches. The Mormon religion teaches that we're saved by grace after all we can do. And after you start to study what after all we can do means... It's this. The phrase, after all we can do, teaches, catch this, that effort is required on our part to receive the fullness of the Lord's grace. We have a killer song going right now. I'm about ready to start dancing. Uh, let, me just, let me try that again. The phrase, after all we can do, teaches that effort is required on our part to receive the fullness of the Lord's grace and, and be made worthy to dwell with Him. Elsewhere, grace unto eternal life and exaltation is insufficient without total effort on the part of the recipient. Elsewhere, grace cannot suffice without total effort on the part of the recipient. Do you see how this flies in the face of what, of what the Bible teaches? That's different. It's grace and total effort. Now, let me just throw this out to you. The people that I have met who are Mormons bear this out. They are living in a mode of saying, I must continue to earn and earn and earn so that I can be rewarded for this performance. 
And that's just different than what the Bible teaches. We read about Islam. I read about Islam almost every day in the newspaper. I see it on TV and I read about it everywhere. The Quran teaches that those who believe and do good deeds of righteousness are going to be saved. Those uh, Elsewhere, those who believe and work righteousness don't have the burden of being punished. A third place, those who believe and work righteousness will not suffer bad things to come. I have about, uh, well, a page worth. I'm not going to go through an entire, an entire page. But I could tick off false gospel after false gospel. And by false gospel, I'm saying these are false hopes to, to base your life on. Here's one. Buddhists believe this. I had a lovely conversation with a woman from our neighborhood who was heading to a Buddhist conference after she helped me with our adoption um, garage sale some months ago. And I asked her point blank, how, do you, how are you saved as a Buddhist? Her question was pretty simple. Well, there's a lot of answers to that. In fact, I'm going to this conference to discuss thousands more. Thousands more? Yes, thousands more. And I was all ears. I said, do tell. And what I began to hear bore out the research I did. Here it is. The future existence um, of, of, of one who, who, who is going to die and be reborn and die and be reborn is conditioned by the last moment thought a person experiences at the point of death. The last thought which determines the next, next existence results from past actions. Do you see this? It's us and our actions us and our merit. Grace of God, of course, because no one can do it all on their own, but you've got to pay off the part of the debt that you still owe. Doesn't that make sense to a human brain? Isn't that how you work in school? Isn't that how some of you were parented growing up? Isn't that how the world works? It's certainly how the military works, I can promise you that. It's how your job works. We just see this. Graceless living is the norm. That's what we're born with and inbred with. We say, that makes sense. I get that. We'll move on to Hinduism. Karma. Bad things come out from you, they're going to come back at you. Good things go out from you, good things are going to come back from you. Uh, Hinduism also puts out this. There's three ways uh, to salvation. The way of karma yoga, which is obtained by fulfilling your family or societal duties. Second one, the way of knowledge. Salvation is attained through a state of consciousness. Third one, the way of devotion. Devotion to one of the many personal gods or goddesses of Hinduism and through acts of worship, temporal rituals, and pilgrimages. That's how you're saved. People who follow these and base, put their trust on these, they're living this out. They're living out their faith. Kudos to them on that. They're not being hypocritical about it. But it stands in the face of what the gospel teaches. This passage we're in this morning. It's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, not by works, so that not one of us in this room gets to share in the glory that's God's work from start to finish. That's why grace is such an important word. I think what I've done is try to touch on some of the, the big major ones. We could move on to paganism, which involves human sacrifice. That's appeasing gods. That says, you do whatever you want, you just appease your gods by chucking goats and your kids into the flame. That's in the Bible. That was a pagan thing back then. People said, we, we owe the gods something. 
We'll pay with our children. And the psalm says, the blood of these children cries out to the Lord. It's polluted the land. It's disgusting to God, to a life-giving God. That's not the way. Neo-paganism says, that's a little harsh. I like my kids. So what they do is they appease gods in different ways. They live virtuous lives. And then they'll experience this, that, and the other thing. Point is this. A lot of voices... One, Gurea, in this case, knew the answer. Now, Jasmine could have stood up here and said, Dave, that's really, really intolerant of you to say there's one way. I mean, I know Laura. That's going to hurt Laura's feelings. <laughs> Laura is right, too. Where were you saying the candy was, Laura? Under Ben's seat. Ben, what's under your seat? Work with me, Ben. Okay, that ruins the illustration. We're done. The answer's nothing. Nothing's under your seat. Oh, man. All right. Grace plus... Uh, here, here's some more widely accepted ones. I don't think many of you um, in this room, maybe some of you are, I don't know that many of you are, are chasing after neo-paganistic ritual uh, to please God this morning. I don't think that's why you're here in a Bible church where the word Bible is in the name on the front sign. But let me throw out some false gospels. These are equally destructive. They're demonic detractors from the one way. They're another voice shouting at you. And while we might say no to certain voices and say those are clearly wrong, I think a lot of Christianity has embraced some of these other ones. Here they are. We'll fly through them. One is that uh, the, the idea of finding it in yourself. I can take you over to uh, a computer, Ben's computer, under his chair. <laughs> and we could go to cbd.com and we could find tons of people under the evangelical umbrella that I think would read our doctrinal statement and be totally okay with it. And there would be book after book after book after book after book that would be a voice telling you where the prize is. And it's not pointing to Christ. It's pointing to you by looking deep within. It's pointing by in some way getting in touch with your inner self. Those all sound very new age, but they have a better way of spinning it. Uh, it, it explores the recesses of your past fears and hurts and disappointments and gives you this lie. If we can just get those figured out, if we could just resolve those, if we could just work through those, that's where the, the bag of Hershey Kisses lies. That's where the treasure lies. Let's go back into the past. There are book after book that want to study, talk, and think about you. Subtly giving this implication, you are paradise. Getting you worked out, getting you figured out, that's where paradise lies. And it's really, really subtle. And it's really, really embraced by a lot of Christians. There's a huge problem with it. It's not biblical. That's not the way of salvation. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see this. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see this. 
Let me read for you one passage that many of you know. Hebrews 12, 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. You get it fixed from yesterday? Guess what? Tomorrow's coming. You'll get ensnared again. You'll get lured again. It's a never-ending chasing after the wind. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes where, church? On Jesus. Where do we fix our eyes, church? On Jesus. Only on some days of the week, like Sunday at 1030? No. We let our minds dwell there. We set up camp there. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse, verse 3 goes on to say, consider Him. And then it goes on to say things. Don't consider other things. Down here is a band that wrote this song, You're Not Alone. I love the chorus of this. Reach out, don't reach within. I'm at the door if you just let me in. Reach out for what you need. What you won't find in yourself, you will find in me. That's a message to a lot of people who think they're saved and are sitting in America's churches. Here's another one. Find it in yourself. Another one is this. Uh, I'm, I'm, really into, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really into Jesus, but not Paul. You ever hear that from people? People like Jesus, but they don't like Paul. Now that could, I mean, I approach that. I go, that makes kind of sense. What if Paul got it wrong? Right? Jesus, Jesus gave birth to the church. The Holy Spirit came and gave birth to the church. Now, what if the church has just gotten it wrong? We're a bunch of sinners. I say that from the front all the time. My family's here. They could stand up and give you a list of the sins I've had this week. What if, what if the church is getting it wrong? What if Paul got it wrong? That's a provocative, leading statement because it implies that Jesus and Paul didn't teach the same thing. I'm in close relationship with someone who says this very thing. They devoutly follow Jesus, but deny Pauline literature. That's a fancy way of saying Paul was out to lunch. So did Paul and Jesus teach the same gospel? Uh, John Piper taught just an incredible, I don't know what this was, I think it was like a, a conference or something, but he spent about an hour on this question. Did Jesus preach the evangelical gospel? Something to that nature. Go to DesiringGod.com, you can find it. But I listened to that this week, and it just blew my mind. It was so powerful. Because he just kind of walks through uh, a lot more that I'm going to touch on in about 30 seconds here. But here it is. What did Jesus teach about justification? He turns to Luke 18, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the story of the parable and the, uh, and the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector? One comes in, and what this, what this Pharisee does is he begins to list some of these things, right? He's moral. He's religious. He believes it even as a gift from God. But here's what he is. He's self-conscious and he's self-confident. Meaning that he's basing it based on his works and who he's not like. Doesn't that sound like an ugly part of Christendom for a long time? That is not salvation according to grace alone through faith. Take the tax collector. Where does he place his trust and confidence in? He looks away from himself. He won't even look up, it says. And what does he say? Be merciful on me, a sinner. We sang this this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And grace abounds much greater than sin. 
You know this if you're a parent. You cannot begin to help your child until they really come to grips with something they've done wrong and desire to change. And when that door opens, it's a beautiful thing. You begin to walk through it. A few verses later, Jesus is still teaching, and he brings up the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes. By the way, Jesus says this. They left that place of worship. Who was justified, the Pharisee or the tax collector? It says the tax collector went home that day justified before a holy and righteous God. He's teaching about justification based on the merit of grace. This is before the cross even. Jesus is talking. He's not dead yet. He teaches a couple of verses later, and the rich young ruler comes up, and he says that he's kept all these different commands. What does the Bible say? I have done all those from the time I was young. Who's he placing his confidence on? Himself, right? What does Jesus reply? Do you guys remember? Here it is. Ready? One thing you lack. Now, what's curious is he says, one thing you lack, then he tells him three things. One thing you lack. Go and what? Sell all you have. He's a rich young ruler. Sell all you have and do what? Give it to the poor and come follow me. Kind of a weird math. One thing you lack. Let me give you three suggestions. Here's what, here's what he does. He turns the whole math equation on its head. You know what the rich young ruler came doing? He came counting merit points. Check, 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 check. I was in Boy Scouts. You do all the check boxes, you get the merit badge. Right? He came checking things off. Give me my merit badge. Came in pride. What else do I need? Jesus said, I'm going to turn the whole thing. What's the one thing that he lacked? It was Jesus. That's it. He is the treasure. That you go and sell all that you have so that you can get that one thing, which is Jesus. The rich young ruler came talking religion. Do you see how Jesus turns that to relationship? Hey, one thing you lack. You don't know me. We're not on the same team. And until that happens, you'll always be lacking. Uh, That leads me to my uh, just final thought here, and that is this. Treasure only Christ. I want to read as we close this morning from the testimony of a redeemed Pharisee, one who was a rebel, a very righteous, righteous rebel, but a rebel nonetheless. He shook his fist at God. He cursed God to his face. The most disrespectful thing, kids, you could say to your folks, Paul said that and did that with his life. And then this this grace moment happens in the Apostle Paul's life. Well, and then he turns into the Apostle Paul, right? He was rebel Saul before. And... His life turns around forever. Why? Because he got that one thing. He treasured one thing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 ought to, ought to drive home this point that we're to treasure one thing. We're to treasure our relationship with Christ. All else is peripheral. We're going to fix our eyes on the one thing that we know saves us. Here it is, Philippians 3, verse 3. This puts in wrap-up form all that we've been talking about. We put no confidence in the flesh Though I myself, this is former rebel Saul talking, now reverent Paul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. That's birthright stuff of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's get more specific. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a rule keeper, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen, I followed one of the other voices before in my life. And I followed it to such a degree, it would put to shame anyone else following any other voice. But guess what? Under the chair, it wasn't a laptop. There was nothing there. It was emptiness. Listen to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a fancy word, kids, for trash. I count everything else as trash because there's a surpassing value of knowing Christ in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Catch this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Church, the most exciting news I have for you this morning is that that idea ends there. There's no, oh, by the way, You better have a really good week the week before you die, or else you're toast. By the way, there's a lot of demands in here. You better measure up, or you're toast. You know what that is? That's more bad news. Now it's just religious bad news, which feels even worse. The gospel is that it depends on Him. Treasure Christ over idolatry. This can be yourself talking about yourself, thinking about yourself, studying about yourself, obsessing about yourself in a good way or a bad way. Both are pride. Self-loathing, the other side of the coin of the most arrogant football player we're going to watch in a couple hours you'll ever see. Same thing, thinking about number one. Sometimes people falsely worship the idol of self. Sometimes people falsely worship the idol of celebrity. Studying, looking, watching everything they do. And in a sense, kind of mirroring their glory by wearing what they wear, driving what they drive, reading what they read. Well, no one reads anymore. Having the laptop that that person has, downloading the same iApps. How's that? That's a little more current. How about treasuring Christ over comfort? I have witnessed and talked to several of you in this room. I look at your life and I say this. This person treasures Christ more than their own comfort. And I know it because I see it in their lifestyle. They could live really comfortable lives and they choose not to for the sake of knowing Christ. Man, that blesses my heart, challenges me. Treasuring Christ over your birthright. I'm born in America. I'm pretty much saved, right? I was born into a Christian family and was raised with good morals. I'm saved, right? I go to church most every Sunday. I'm saved, right? Treasure Christ over anything else like that. Band, why don't you come on up? I concluded last week the same way I'll conclude this week. The offer that Jesus offers is life. It's really simple. Does Jesus offer to you a promotion? Probably not. A carefree lifestyle, a comfortable lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle, good relationships, 
a loving church home with no politics and no backbiting. A car that never, ever breaks down. None of that. Some of that may be added to your life. Some of that may get extremely worse the moment you decide to really follow Christ with your whole heart. But don't be mistaken. That wasn't his offer in the first place. He offers life, and I'll give you four very quick things. He he offers you life because you have assurance of a salvation by a finished work. The work's already done. Now we just walk in the ways he's laid out for us, and we keep reverting back to trusting on the work that was done 2,000 years ago on a cross. The second Satan comes and whispers in your ear, you're a lousy mom this week. You know what you can answer is this. You can say, praise God for grace. Praise God for a gospel that says my salvation doesn't depend on my performance as a mom this week. Ladies and gentlemen, that's life. That's why I have a smile on my face today. It's not because I had a good week in the Lord and good things that, that I can accumulate and come to you with a bunch of pride. He offers life because bearing the weight of forgiveness was done on Jesus and not on us. We don't bear the weight of paying the penalty for our fine. He gives us life by giving to us the merit we could never hope to earn and no longer need to perform to get. And finally, He offers us life by giving us this basic understanding. Any moral living that comes out of your life, any Christ-like character that pours forth from your life is simply the root of of a new heart given to you by grace. It's not the root of your salvation, it's the fruit of your salvation. Let Christ do a work in you, and then you'll be fit to do all kinds of good works the rest of your life. And the moment you start to walk down a path where you say, I'm serving God right now so that He'll think better of me, you've gotten it inverted. Danger of the rich young ruler. Let's pray. God, we're a people this morning that need your grace. And I love this thought, this picture that someone said somewhere that grace like water always flows to the the lowest place. God, your grace is evident a week after week that I walk down life with this group of people, this family of mine that you've provided us. Lord, would you guard us from voices that distract and detract us from you? They could be good things. We confess that. But you're the best thing. You're the only thing that we want to treasure. Father, many may come through our doors and through the doors of churches preaching the one gospel this Christmas season. Manifest yourself, Lord, to them as only you can. We thank you for the light of your word. We thank you for how it instructs us. We thank you for how a king thousands of years ago who was shouted down by detractors, accused, belittled, and maligned for the very things that pleased you, which was to call out false gods, see that and mimic that today. 
God, we attest and affirm by our lives, by our mouths this morning, and now by our song, that you're enough, God. You're all that we need. We love you and we praise you this morning. And all God's people say, Amen.